We'll hear argument first this morning in case 07499, Negusi v. Mukasey. Mr. Pincus. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. A father forced at gunpoint to engage in incest with his daughter because of his religion, race, or political views and told that he and his daughter will be killed if he refuses is far outside the class of persons brought to mind by the ordinary meaning of the phrase at issue in this case, which is reprinted on uh, page one of our brief, quoting from section A42, any person who ordered, incited, assisted, or otherwise participated in the persecution of any person on account of a prohibited factor. The same is true of someone who is part of the religious persecution directed against him is forced on threat of death to disrupt a prayer meeting and injure his co-religionists. The father and the co-religionist are victims of persecution. They would not be described in ordinary parlance as persecutors. And we think that that really is dispositive of the question in this case. Under the government's view, the persecutor bar turns solely on what they term objective effect of an individual's acts. But that means that the act need not be accompanied by any of the indicia of moral offensiveness that the law typically requires. Even if the individual acted under duress, under threat of death, even if the individual did not know that his conduct related to persecution, and even if the individual had no It would begin intent, with the assumption that this is a Chevron deference case. Um, and I think Aguirre, INS versus Aguirre, would tell us that it is. It was a different statute. Do we begin with that assumption? Well, I think under Chevron step one, the first question is, is there a gap to be filled here? Is the language Do I, do I begin with, with, with Chevron? Uh, well, yes, we think Chevron supplies the framework. The first question is, is there, is there ambiguity? We, would, we argue that here, if you and, — and our principal submission is that there is no ambiguity here and that there's therefore no occasion for deference. If the Court were to disagree with that — your position is that there's um, no ambiguity in the way the term is used in the statute as opposed to no ambiguity in some abstract sense? Yes. Our, our submission, Mr. Chief Justice, is that the phrase here, uh, using the principle that the Court applied in Watson, looking at the phrase and, and looking at the picture that it brings to mind, would never bring to mind the examples that I, that I cited as, as uh, conduct that would be captured by this provision. Mr. Pincus, could, could I ask about your, your description of the government's position as saying that it, it's purely objective and that there's no, no mental factor, whatever? Uh, is, it, is it clear that the government not only would uh, not take into account coercion, the fact that it was done under coercion, but also would not take into account the fact that the individual even knew? There are cases. That, 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 that he was persecuting somebody? Uh, yes, Your Honor, there are cases, some of which uh, that determination has been reversed by a court of appeals, but the BIA has taken the position for. Has the government taken that position here in this case? Uh, the government, well, we've pointed out that that is the position that the BIA has taken and the government has not disavowed it. Uh, so I, I don't know whether they're taking I guess I should it, ask the government. Huh? Yes, Your Honor. But, but uh, there certainly have been a number of decisions along that line, including one, for example, where an individual was, was uh, told, you know, stand here, don't, mm. on the other side well, of I the could, hill. Well, I could think that that's wrong without thinking that, uh, that you also — uh, uh, have to take into account whether there was coercion. 
You could, Your Honor, although the underlying, the, the government's underlying theory for, for all three of its positions, both uh, that coercion doesn't matter, that knowledge doesn't matter, and that subjective intent doesn't matter, is its view that these words require only uh, objective acts. Once you determine that the words require something more, well, but, but then if, I — But it's very, it's very common in, 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 uh, in, in criminal uh, statutes to uh, require knowledge of the act. Indeed, if the person doesn't know what he's doing, uh, you know, he may be insane, but he's not a criminal. Whereas uh, it is not automatically clear that, uh, uh, that, the, that, that the fact that the, you, you killed somebody because uh, otherwise uh, they'd break your arm uh, would, would be a, a justification. I mean, it seems to me the two are quite separable. Well, two responses, Your Honor. Uh, certainly in the criminal context, duress is a well-recognized uh, defense, and this Court has, has said that in Dixon and, and other cases. But I just want to be clear that the knowledge that we're talking about here that the government has disavowed is not knowledge that you've engaged in an act. They don't, they don't take the position that sleepwalking is, uh, can, can be a persecutive act. But their view is even if you don't know that your act is contributing to persecution, you're kept in the dark by the, per- the actual persecutors. They've just asked you to do something that, in fact, is contributing to persecution. They say that doesn't matter. And that is, all rests on what we think is their wrongheaded uh, construction of the statute. I, I just want to Your position to is that any threat of serious injury is sufficient? Excuse me? Your position is that any threat of serious injury is sufficient? No, Your Honor. I, I mean, obviously, the the... the it, no, that's what court, your brief says, well, being forced upon threat of death or serious injury to participate in the persecutory acts of his oppressors. Yes, and our, our position is that that's a logical starting point. There is, of course, a body of law that's been developed in the criminal context about the parameters of the defense of duress, and that would be a very pretty logical starting point, we think. The Attorney General would have discretion uh, once the, the Court corrected the view that the, uh, that the statute uh, doesn't that, — that coercion is irrelevant to, 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 within the limits of Chevron, define what the coercion test is. Well, if someone said, um, if you don't th- — there are 500 men, women, and children in a shed. If you don't uh, administer lethal gas to them, we're going to administer 20 lashes. That would be sufficient in your view? Well, under some under some uh, conceptions of this defense, there's a balancing test that uh, between the, the the threat that's directed against the individual and the threat and and what and the injury that he's asked to carry out. That could be part of the test, as I say. Well, that sounds very case, helpful. How would the balancing be struck? How would you strike it there? Well, what the what the courts have said in the criminal context is that there are three criteria, an immediate threat of death or serious bodily injury, a well-grounded fear that will be carried out, and no reasonable opportunity to escape. That's, that's the general standard. So in the criminal context — You wouldn't balance. I mean, say, so, you know, uh, uh, gas these 20,000 people or we'll kill you. It might be appropriate. You gas the 20,000 people, it, right, and that's okay. Well, some courts have said that murder is a different — kettle of fish, and that there's a question uh, unanswered in the federal system about whether or not there is a duress defense for murder. The, the, the states are divided. The model penal code has said, yes, there should be. That's one of the issues that, that would be open for the Attorney General to the extent he wishes to exercise his discretion to, to decide. What's clear, though, is, we think, uh, 
the rule, the current construction of the statute is not right. There is a body of law out there that is well developed in the criminal context that could be a, a very logical starting point. Why should you, the starting you, point be what this court decided in the Fedorenko case? I mean, the wording of this provision is very close to the wording of that statute, much closer than the UN um, covenant that you have referred to? Well, Your Honor, uh, uh, two responses to that. First of all, the language in Fedorenko, the, the, the text was very context-specific, uh, and, and it shows that. The, the, the language that, uh, that applied there uh, specifically referred to the enemy and specifically referred to persecution of civilians, making pretty, quite clear that that was a statute that was targeted in, a, in the specific World War II context, which was all that it applied to. Uh, it was also the, the distinction about the use of the word voluntary, in, in which the operative language which barred those people didn't have voluntary in it, and I forget what it was at the next textual section, it was there. So there was, there was a reason to, to infer that voluntary activity was not a criterion for the bar. Exactly, Your Honor. And the Court said the deliberate omission, it specifically looked at the fact that these sections were adopted at the same time, followed on each other immediately, and one had voluntary and didn't. And it said this was a deliberate omission, and we conclude that that deliberate omission provides a basis for interpreting you take the, the language of the Do you GPA. take the position that the government is wrong in saying that it's bound by Fedorenko, and that's a reason perhaps for us to send it back? Exactly, Your Honor. That, I was going to get to the second part of, the, of your Chevron question and respond just that. If the Court were to conclude, contrary to our submission, that the language here is ambiguous and there's a gap to fill, our position is, and we think it's quite well borne out uh, by the decisions, that the BIA's decisions here rested on the mistaken assumption that Fedorenko bound it in this case. And do we begin with the uh, decisions of R- Rodriguez Mahano? But there are, there are the two BIA, that are relevant. The BIA decision yes. cited Federico. Rodriguez Mahano is the first one. Uh, the issue was not even raised in that case. It was dicta in the paragraph before citing Federico. In fact, the BIA says the service agreed at oral argument that the actions don't uh, constitute participation in persecution. So there really wasn't an issue there. But all that's there is a sentence and a reliance on Federico. seems pretty clear that that decision just — uh, mistakenly believe Federico controlled well, the case. Well, to give the devil his due, it's not just the BIA that took that view. It's every court of appeals that uh, that, that has looked at this provision has said that Federico is is a guide to what it means, right? Yes. So but you're faulting the, uh, the the BIA for uh, you're saying it's it's beyond reasonable interpretation for the BIA to adopt. Uh, uh, the the resolution of the ambiguity, assuming there's an ambiguity, uh, which uh, w- comports with what uh, every court of appeals to address the matter has said. I think there are, there are two different questions here, uh, Justice Scalia. If the BIA purported to, if the B- BIA said there's a gap to fill here, we're going to exercise our expertise and discretion and decide that that would be one situation. We think it's quite clear here that the BIA believed erroneously 
that uh, Fedorenko compelled the result, that it thought that this was a Chevron step one case, and it was merely reciting what it believed to be the rule and saying Fedorenko controls. So we why, think why, why do you think that's clear? What's, what's, what's the text you rely on? The text that, that we're relying on is, is the actual decision, which just makes a flat statement. Again, in dicta, the participation, or I'm, I'm reading from uh, Rodriguez Mahano, uh, Do I have it in front of me? You don't. It's a decision of the BIA. Well, gee, if, I mean, if this is central to your case, don't you think I ought to have the language in front of me somewhere? Well, actually, uh, the language uh, is on page 27 of our yellow brief. Uh, I apologize, Your Honor. Wonderful. At the very top of the page. So all that there is there is a recitation of the rule and a citation to Fedorenko and, and our submission. It's a C citation, right? Yes. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's just not a flat citation which would say that governs. It means this is a relevant uh, case that you should look to. And uh, you don't deny that it's relevant. You try to distinguish it, but it's certainly something you should consider, No. Well, Your Honor, and it that's certainly, all you have it to, certainly, to, to say that they, they, they based it on Fedorenko. Yes. They, well, first of all, as I say, the statement in this decision is dictum. Here, I'm not sure whether they consulted the Blue Book before they picked the seaside, but, but, uh, but it, it seems to me that, that all we have here is a legal rule, and a legal rule that generally has been perceived to be the rule that, uh, that was announced by Fedorenko, not tied in any way to the different statutory language at issue in this case or anything else. Let me, let me also turn to the second decision uh, that's relied on, uh, which is the decision in this case. And there, and I'm looking at, at page 6A of the petition, um, the BIA says, Citing to, to its prior decision in matter of Fedorenko, it, it recites this rule. Now, matter C-site of Fedorenko. again, isn't it? It's another C site. C- C- oh, okay. This may indicate because they're actually directly well, anyway. Um, matter, matter of Fedorenko, that's a case, and, and I apologize. In our brief, we said that was a case that relied on the DPA. That's actually a case that involved the Holtzman Amendment. Uh, again, not the statute at issue in this case. Uh, and, Therefore, just sort of reflexively taking a rule in a different case and applying it to this very different statute without every, any analysis. And not to get into too much of a train of, of BIA logic, but I think it's important. The second case cited here, Matter of Lepinix, which is actually the, the precedent that Matter of Fedorenko relies on, again, specifically calls out uh, the language uh, Fedorenko and says, as in Fedorenko, and I'm quoting from page 464 of that decision, as in Fedorenko, the plain language mandates the result. So here, in, in, in all of the BIA analysis, uh, there is no analysis in terms of exercising expertise and discretion. I'm Each sorry, where the plain language dictates the result is, is where do I see that? It's in that I, I apologize, it's in a different BIA decision. It's in the matter of Lepinkus decision at page 464. You say citing matter of Lepinkus. 
Lipenix? Lipenix, yes. Citing, it says citing matter of Lipenix. Do you know if they cited it just flatly, or was it a (laughs) seaside? That I don't know, Your Honor. Um, If you you want to bet? (laughs) I'm betting on C. If, if they say that the plain language of the statute dictates a particular result, I say, I, I suspect that that's a concession we're in Chevron step one rather than two. Exactly, Your Honor. And that's why uh, in res- my response to Justice Kennedy's question is that if the Court were to disagree with us and conclude, contrary to our submission, that the language is ambiguous, then we don't have an exercise of agency discretion under Severon Step 2 because all the agency decisions uh, rest on the belief that the statutory language forecloses that, dis- uh, that exercise of that discretion. So in that event, we submit the appropriate result would be to remand the case. Uh, but, of course — Mr. Pincus, could you tell me, what's, what's the consequence of this? I mean, if, if indeed uh, your client is, is denied asylum because, uh, because he participated in, in — in, uh, under coercion or not, uh, discriminatory action uh, against others, uh, what is the consequence? Is he — he's not sent back to the to — the, country that, uh, uh, that is persecuting him, is he? Well, his, his deportation has been deferred under the Convention Against Torture. So he has some, some protection, not the protections, not the full protections that he would be entitled to uh, if he were uh, found to be a refugee. What, what, what happens to him? Is he, does he stay here? Or? He gets to stay here. Uh, Until some other country other than the one that will persecute him will receive him. Is that, is that it? Yes. Or if, if — if he were — he gets to stay here as long as sending him back would not involve torture. So the protection is narrower than the protection that generally right. would be available in two senses. First of all, it only applies to torture. If you were sent back and you were going to be imprisoned for life for your — for the acts that are protected, oh, really? CAT would not protect you. And CAT also does not protect you against uh, non-state action. So — especially in the world today, where a lot of the bad things that happen in other countries are by rebels and non-state actors, the Convention Against Torture would not provide protection in that situation. So it's broader protection for a broader — for a somewhat broader group of people. Okay. Well, let me ask you — Let me ask you about another practical consequence of your position. I, I've seen a lot of these asylum cases, and usually the evidence consists almost entirely of the un- uncorroborated statement made by the person who's claiming asylum. So in your view, the immigration judges are going to have to decide the degree of the threat that the asylum claimant underwent and the consequences of failing to comply with whatever he was directed to do. And they're going to have to do that based solely on a credibility determination made about an uncorroborated witness who's typically testifying through an interpreter and who has all of the mannerisms and uh, aspects of speech of someone who comes from an entirely different culture. That's the consequences of the position that you're advocating. Yes, Your Honor, just just as in the initial question about whether someone has been subject to persecution in the first place, uh, that is the process that we have. And immigration judges are quite skilled. Uh, in getting to the bottom of what's going on. They also have, in addition, and, and 
as relied on you in really this case. You really think that's true? They're quite skilled at getting to the bottom of making well, of these. Well, I think, I think it is their job. I think they also have uh, the country reports that the State Department prepares, and they were relied on in this case. If, 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 for example, someone were to come in and say, I'm the victim of coercion, and the country report in, does not provide any indication that that's happening in the country, that's obviously a, a reason to look quite skeptically no, well, if they on the claim. claim. I would be subject to persecution in Denmark if I were sent there. That might be an easy question, but they typically come from a country where there is persecution. And they could easily have been subjected to it, or they could also just as easily have read about it or heard about it in, along their way here. Yes, Your Honor, that's but that's — Well, but it's true of the initial claim of persecution. If, 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 if a refugee, uh, an asylum applicant, comes and says, I've been subject to persecution and there's no issue of coercion in the case, that the, — the concern that you're, you've identified arises there. Yes, but you're, the, you're, case you're, specific, you're, the case-specific decision has to be made. Uh, this is an additional question that will have to be answered. You're uh, unprovable question upon unprovable question. I mean, to say that one question is — really, really hard to figure out is no justification for laying on another one. And we also think it's significant in this respect that the Secretary of Homeland Security has, in connection with a different disability, the material support disability, uh, said that promulgated uh, an exclusion for, in some circumstances, uh, for people who are coerced to provide material support. I'm curious, why did you answer Justice Alito's question, yes? Uh, I, I, I would have thought that if you win this case, the Attorney General would still have a tremendous leeway in deciding where, when, under what circumstances uh, the duress defense applied. Why isn't that so? That's, that's absolutely right, Justice Breyer. Well, if that's right, then why do you not — why was your answer yes? Uh, I, my answer was in the absence of action by the Attorney General. But I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right that, that the important thing to point out here is, as with the standard itself, the Attorney General could, in the asylum context, decide that in certain kinds of situations that uh, this uh, Mr. coercion Mr. is not relevant. Refresh my recollection about something about the Fedorenko case, which I, I should have reread back. I honestly didn't in, in detail. Am I not correct at the point that Justice Alito makes was really part of the background of the case there was that nobody really believed his testimony. And it, it was assumed for purpose of decision that he, he was telling the truth, but it was pretty clear he was not. Whereas here, everybody does assume for purpose of decision that this man is telling the truth. Uh, yes, I, I think that's, that's correct, Justice Stevens. And, and part of what was going on there was the just sheer — two things, the sheer administrative burden of millions of refugees and the need to process them in some kind of expeditious fashion, and the fact that, that it was known that there was a sort of an organized effort by people who had been participating, uh, especially in the concentration camps, to come up with this uh, defense. Mr. Pingus, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the — the bottom line of your, your exchange with Justice Breyer. Uh, is it your position that there has, there has to be some, co- some coercion defense, but it's up to the Attorney General to say what it is? Oh, I mean, he could say only if you were threatened with death? Yes. Only if you were threatened with torture? Not if, you, not if uh, it was uh, threatened that your family would be exterminated? 
How, where, where do you get that discretion in the, in the statute? Well, the, the Attorney General has rulemaking authority uh, in, in the asylum area, certainly. Oh, and, so and we think even, in, in, even with respect to — Any old coercion defense, he can just make — so long as there's some coercion defense, that's all you want. Some coercion defense. Well, we think the, the question now before the Court is, is there no coercion defense? That's the, that's the government's position. Flatly, totally irrelevant. But, but why does the, the uh, Attorney General have expertise in, in that area? I can uh, understand why he has expertise when he knows that from experience uh, that certain defenses are harder to prove than others, that certain evidence is harder to obtain than other evidence. But does the Attorney General really have expertise in determining uh, degrees of duress, degrees of culpability? Is that within the Chevron framework? Well, it, 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 it seems to me it could well. I mean, obviously, that would be a question that would come up. But, but given that I mean, I don't once, once you, there is a coercion. I don't know why you concede that. Well, I think once there is a coercion defense, it would be fleshed out in the administrative process. But you said you you never get past step one of Chevron. You say that this statute is clear. You say it's not ambiguous. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, we say it's not ambiguous. I think it's pretty ambiguous if, uh, you know, there's some old coercion defense, but we don't really know what it is. Well, uh, it seems to me if if you're going to say step one is clear, there has to be some coercion defense that the, you know, of, of, of a substantial nature that the Attorney General cannot uh, fritter away. We agree with that, Your Honor, and I apologize and what if I would suggested it be? to the what contrary. Would be, the what would be the minimum? You say the statute is clear. It requires some culpability. How would you verbalize what is the lowest standard that the Attorney General could impose? To read this statute, to infuse in it some element of culpability. Because the statutory context here was to implement our treaty obligations, and the treaty obligations refers to, refer to criminal conduct. We think the logical starting point that, that, you, that you're asking about, Justice Ginsburg, would be the criminal law Standards, which, as I say, are well developed in the federal system. Serious bodily harm. Yes, it's a it's a three part test of a threat of serious bodily harm, uh, no reasonable, uh, well grounded fear that it will be carried out, and no reasonable way to avoid it. Unless the court has any. Thank you, Mr. Pinkus. Mr. Katsis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In categorical terms, the Immigration and Nationality Act provides that persons who assist or otherwise participate in persecution may not obtain certain immigration. Well, you stopped. <clears throat> you stopped in the part that interests me. Participated in persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, or membership in a particular group. When these people are forced to engage in persecution. It's not because of the victim's race, religion. It's because someone's got a gun at their head. So you ask them, well, why did you do that? Why did you, you know, whip that person? They'll say, because they were going to kill me. They're not going to say, you know, because I'm biased against his race or religion. No, but the the on-account-of phrase, Mr. Chief Justice, um, 
modifies the persecution. The persecution in this case was well, well, um, how is you, directed how do you know at that. Why, why can't it just as easily modify incited, participated in? And even if it's persecution, it's the, did they participate in the persecution on account of race, or did they participate again in the persecution on account of what the uh, it, what the force exerted against them was? I think gr- grammatically, the immediately preceding noun is persecution. Um, if if the on account of phrase uh, modified modified the assistance, Mr. Chief Justice, it seems to me that would prove far too much in that um, a prison guard who served voluntarily voluntarily in order to get a paycheck um, wouldn't be within the bar because he would he wouldn't be assisting on account of well that just brings um, you I back th- to what assistance mean if you do our normal statutory Canon, you've got ordered, incited, right. assisted. Assistance can be read in the same sense as ordered or incited, with terms of an active, I don't know what it is, predisposition or, or desire. Or it can be read in the manner you suggested, somebody who's just doing it for, for the paycheck. Uh, so if we read it uh, in use some generous terms, um, then I think your response falls short. I, I, don't, I don't think so, Mr. Chief Justice, in that the question here question here is the um, availability of a duress defense. Um, one, can, one can order persecution under duress just as one can assist in persecution under duress. Imagine, for instance, um, the camp commandant at Treblinka ordering the slaughter of thousands of innocent people. Um, he could say, well, I'm doing that under duress because if I don't, if I don't order persecution, someone up my chain of command uh, will kill me, which is precisely what's wrong with petitioner's theory here, is its, it's unbounded nature. Well, but uh, that argument is at one extreme where if this does apply as the way petitioners suggest, we assume the Attorney General can exercise his discretion and not afford relief. But on the other hand, it could go to some of the uh, horrific examples that Mr. Pincus suggested, and in those circumstances, the Attorney General could exercise his discretion to afford relief. The, the Attorney General does not have discretion with respect to withholding, and remember, the persecutor bar in the asylum statute is identical to the persecutor bar in the withholding statute. Um, but in any event, um, as this Court said in cases like Finpathia, um, the fact that the text goes to an eligibility requirement um, is not a ground for the court uh, reading in limitations that aren't there on the on the theory that the attorney general can address something case by case. Um, that's because immigration is subject to the plenary control of Congress, and when Congress writes a rule and this court converts it into a standard, it's shifting control over the immigration laws from Congress to the executive and ultimately to the courts. It seems to us that reasoning governs here. Um, with respect to your question about hard hypotheticals, um, I don't dispute that there are um, hard sympathetic, um, sympathetic persecutors um, on Mr. Pincus' side of the case. Um, but keep in mind what is at stake here. Um, persecution is um, 
not typically a grassroots phenomenon. It's a, it's a phenomenon typically ordered by governments or rebel groups aspiring to be governments. It's typically carried out through coercion. So if petitioners are correct, um, not only the prison guard in this case who held a gun to keep people out in the sun um, until they died, not only would he have a colorable defense, but so too would every single guard at Treblinka. And so too would, I gather, the person who is threatened with harm if he doesn't build the prison walls, right? He knows they're going to be used to persecute people and hold them in. I mean, you know, if you, if you push the extreme interpretations, they go either way. Does, 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 he, uh, does he persecute people on account of race? Well, we have a prison here. We're going to hold members of a particular racial group here, and uh, we're going to force you to build the walls. Mr. Chief Justice, you're absolutely correct that there will, of course, be hard cases about how broadly to draw the circle. But in Fedorenko, this Court instructed that the way to deal with that problem is not by reading in a, a voluntariness exception into a statute that simply doesn't contain it, um, but, but, but rather your, your, by your, your position is that it's unbounded. If, if the legislature passes a statute requiring a specific intent, scienter, uh, concepts of personal responsibility, uh, we don't say this is unbounded. Of course, Justice Kennedy, Congress could um, pass a statute with whatever. And I'm saying in the general criminal law, we don't we don't say, oh, this is unbounded. In, uh, this is what this is what courts are for. This is what adjudication is for. It's that's that's to, a, to, to, to establish and define what duress means, what scienter means, what d- degree of intent is culpable, what isn't. That's, that's unbounded. That's true in the context of criminal law, but think about why it's true, Justice Kennedy. It's true because Congress, when it passes criminal statutes, legislates against a background of hundreds of years of common law precedent in the criminal area, and this Court has said presumptively Congress legislates against that common law background, and that is the theory for on some occasions reading mens rea requirements and common law defenses like duress into criminal statutes. That in any way, not any sta- I mean, I, I, starting where Justice Kennedy left off, you said a hundred years. It's the thousands of years. I mean, you could go exactly. back into the history of the human race. Exactly. And you will discover, of course, that your word, involuntary, is never something where the action is involuntary, that we praise or blame people. Rather, every action where we praise or blame people must be a voluntary action. The classic example is the wind that blew my arm. Now, you're saying that if this person's arm was blown by the wind, that this statute prevents him having asylum in the United States or having, you know, withholding. How, how could one assume that, that involuntary actions are covered by this statute, are not covered? Justice Breyer, the, the case yeah. — two points. With respect, with respect to involuntary actions, this case, um, this case doesn't present that question. All right. And once you say that, then let's talk about intentional actions. Okay. And are you going to have intentional actions? Because praise or this, blame typically involves a voluntary action 
an intentional action and an action where there is a degree of freedom, which is to say that the choice is not too skewed. And we see that in the criminal law by a reading in to statutes that say nothing of the word intentional and by the use of the duress defense. Now, what reason do we have for thinking that Congress didn't mean these words here in exactly that way, which traces back at least to Aristotle? Because the the thousand-year tradition that you correctly identify is a criminal law tradition. No, Aristotle doesn't say criminal law. He says praise or blame. Justice Breyer, this is a statute. um, It's a statute that allocates immigration benefits. Immigration law is a creature of statute. There's no background That's absolutely right. Do you think Congress intended that this absolute bar should apply where the person is in no sense blameworthy? The, the question, with respect to intentional conduct, the conduct at issue here, Justice Breyer, is knowing and intentional. So there's no question no, about No, but the it. reasoning here, Mr. Katz, it seems to me, implicates exactly what Justice Breyer brings up. Uh, we had a colloquy earlier uh, on, on the extent of the reliance by the BIA for its general policy on Fedorenko and mm-hmm. was it a, what did a C-site mean and so on. But in, in this particular case, going to page 6A uh, or 7A from which Mr. Mr. Pincus was, was earlier quoting, if you look on page 7A, the reason uh, that Fedorenko is thought to be appropriate here is he, that is to say, the petitioner here, has not demonstrated that his conduct is distinguishable from that of the alien in that case. The conduct of the alien in that case uh, was identified as relevant by the voluntary-involuntary distinction. It was so identified because of the text of the statute. Voluntary was used in one place. It wasn't used in the place where the bar was set out. So that it seems to me that by the express reasoning in this case, this case is governed by a rule that in effect says the distinction between voluntary and involuntary action is not a relevant distinction. So I don't think you can get by in this case without confronting just what Justice Breyer says. And I don't see how you can answer his point in this case uh, without admitting uh, that, that Fedorenko, in fact, was was — uh, improvidently relied upon uh, because it's not good authority here. I, I don't know why it, with, with respect to the BIA's reasoning, um, this decision is a straightforward application of 20 years of BIA precedent concluding that, consistent with Fedorenko, that voluntariness is well, not relevant. this isn't now, really consistency we, with Fedorenko. This, this, in, in this case, the, the BIA is, is saying he cannot say that his conduct, in, in effect, is different from the conduct in Fedorenko. And what was relevant about the Fedorenko conduct was it did not have to be voluntary conduct. So it is bringing, it seems to me, the, the, the reasoning in this case is, is, is relying upon a rule that says the voluntary-involuntary distinction is not significant. Right. That was the construction. Which, which the construction. Which Justice Breyer's the, question. But the, I'm, I'm, I might be missing some of the subtlety of your, your point, but let, let me try I, it this I doubt way. it, but. Let, let, me, let me try it this way. Um, the, the, 
the statutory formulation we're discussing is is the concept of assistance in persecution. Mm-hmm. Fedorenko, in the context of the Displaced Persons Act, construes that provision to make involuntariness irrelevant as a matter of law. Right. Um, many courts of appeals and the BIA repeatedly um, over the last 20 years have held that the reasoning of Fedorenko governs not only the Displaced Persons Act, where it is, of course, directly controlling, but subsequent statutes, of which there are no fewer than seven, using essentially the identical formulation of assistance in persecution, Congress carries forward that formulation in a canonical way, mm-hmm. statute after statute. If you look to legislative history, um, you will see that Congress repeatedly expresses an affirmative intent that all of these persecutor bar provisions be construed in peri materia. But, and against that backdrop, we have administrative precedent. But one thing that Congress has not done, and it didn't do it in this Act, uh, is to uh, make the express voluntary involuntary distinction textually uh, that the DPA made in Fedorenko. Uh, and it seems to me that the reasoning set out in this case says this is exactly like the Fedorenko situation. That implies uh, that the same rule uh, in Fedorenko should apply. If the same rule applies, presumably it should be on the basis of a statute which is identical on the, on the textual voluntariness point to the statute in Fedorenko. This one, this one is not. I- identical or not textually distinguishable. Um, to the extent — Well, you don't have the voluntary-involuntary distinction here uh, in, in, or in, in, in textual treatment that you had in, in, the, in the DPA statute in Fedorenko, do you? you? Well, you have the same operative language of assist in persecution. You have you don't, you don't follow that with the section that uses the word voluntary, whereas the bar does not use the word voluntary, ex- right? Except you do. Through, throughout, the, throughout the INA are provisions that are in expressly key to voluntariness. Um, so you have the same, the same contrast can be made with respect to the INA bars as Federenko made with respect to the DPA bar. Can you, can you give me a couple of examples of the, of the voluntariness that, that creates, in effect, the same distinction sure. as under the DPA? Sure. Let, let me give you one. Um, the, asylum, the asylum statute, the substantive asylum statute itself in uh, 8 U.S.C. 1158, um, was, was that was that passed as part of the same legislation that that created the the, the, the bar section we're dealing with? Yes and no. And let me explain. The section 1158, the substantive asylum law, um, did not have a persecutor bar as originally enacted by the Refugee Act of 1980. Um, the persecutor bar in the substantive asylum statute. Um, was added in 1996 by the IRIRA statute, which in the same statute, in the same section, um, has a provision that um, asylum can be terminated um, if the alien voluntarily um, decides to return to his home. So you have a contrast in the same section of the same statute, um, conduct-based — 
I, I, I don't want to split, split hairs here, but, I mean, the, the, the voluntary return behavior uh, is, is a behavior of the alien in this country uh, with respect to, in effect, uh, an, an, an election under existing uh, federal law, whereas the voluntary-involuntary distinction in the DPA uh, was a distinction that referred to the alien's conduct uh, uh, overseas at the relevant time. That's a fair point, Justice Souter, but to the extent part of the reasoning in Fedorenko re- rests on the, the Rossello canon with an inference from a contrast, um, those same contrasts are present here where the, the point of the example well, is that con- you, you, the you have convinced me there are contrasts, but I am not sure that there are contrasts that, that raise the implication uh, in, in a clear way as it was raised in the DPA. Well, and I think that's, well, that's my only disagreement with you at this point. Mr. Cousins, Cousins, could, have- could I, can I bring you back to Aristotle? <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Thank you. This is, this is not a criminal statute. We, exactly. The government is not imposing punishment upon this person exactly for some for some malfeasance rather it's it's giving a grant of uh, a, a great benefit exactly. to a class of people and your position is that it has narrowed that class perhaps narrowed it more than was necessary but but that the government thought rather than letting in and giving asylum to the uh, the commandant of Trebenko, it would be better to have uh, a provision that simply excludes those who, under coercion or not, persecuted others. Isn't isn't that? that, that and did did Aristotle say anything about that? I, I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, limiting not sure. limiting limiting the nation's generosity on the basis of a provision that may or may not have anything to do with, uh, with blame. I, I, I don't know what Aristotle had to say about it. But you do know that Aristotle was not construing this federal statute, don't you? <laughs> well, speaking a- of which, to get back to the language, what's wrong with saying you, you have a clause that says otherwise participated, right? right? So that must mean, I gather, or could mean that assisted does not have as broad a meaning as you suggest. Because otherwise the otherwise, otherwise the otherwise participated language would be unnecessary and redundant. I, I don't think so, Mr. Chief Justice, because the statutory sequence is the word assist um, goes all the way back to the Displaced Persons Act um, in the 1977 person. I mean, when, when Congress changes assist to assists or otherwise participates in. Right. The only consequence of that, if any, could be a broadening, not a narrowing. Well, I'm not sure that's right, because if, well, if it, otherwise participated covers — if assisted does not include otherwise participating, and I understood your broad reading of assisted to cover the prison walls guy, it, then it, it does, then I would say assisted needs to be interpreted with ordered and incited. But, and if it is, then otherwise participated should be interpreted along the same lines. Mr. Chief Justice, you, the word assist was construed in Fedorenko not to, not to contain an implicit voluntariness exception. Congress adds to that the word participate, um, which this Court in Yeski construed not to have an implicit involuntariness So you think they were just — it was a belt and suspenders uh, redundancy? It, 
either belt and suspenders or um, broadening the circle in, in ways that are difficult to describe in the abstract. But participate, this Court has said in, said in Reeves, participate is a term of breadth. So I don't, I don't see the argument that by adding an additional term of breadth to the scheme, Congress somehow narrowed um, what would otherwise apply. What, res- uh, what I, I may have missed it. What, what was your answer to the prison walls, the guy who builds the prison yeah. walls? My, He's part, is he or is he not participating in the persecution? My answer is that the analysis of that question does not turn on whether or not he's compelled to build the prison walls. It, it turns on footnote 34 of Fedorenko, which says that courts will have to draw difficult lines in distinguishing between the kind of aid that constitutes assistance within the meaning of the statute and the kind of aid that does not. Well, that's very helpful. <laughs> but the court. I mean, you can I get from you the answer to the question that I put to Mr. Pincus? Uh, do you do you does the government deny even the necessity of uh, uh, knowledge that what you're doing is uh, assisting in the persecution of somebody? In you don't even have to know that you're assisting in the persecution. In this case, Justice Scalia, our our position is that. Um, Knowledge is a sufficient mens rea and is clearly satisfied here, where Petitioner, by his own testimony, knew about the mistreatment of prisoners. What's your answer to the question? We have taken the position, Justice Stevens, in other cases, that knowledge is not required. It's been rejected by a few courts of appeals. Good good for them. I mean, that that is really an an extreme it, it is a broader position, but happily for me, it is not the position uh, before the Court today, particularly, particularly in light of Fedorenko, Justice Scalia, which um, puts a gloss on voluntariness in terms and does of the not address. Of the statute, what's the difference between intent and knowledge in terms of the purpose of the statute? Why is intent uh, a, a different, I mean, lack of intent any different from lack of knowledge? If you lead the statute literally. I, I, the question, I'm not sure the distinction. You say that you're not presented with a case involving lack of knowledge. You or, are. Or intent. Wait, wait. Or, or intent, Justice Stevens. The conduct here is intentional. The question is whether there's a duress exception is, to you it. You mean the, it was an intent to persecute or intent to perform certain acts that constitute persecution? In, intent to perform the acts that constitute People use that word intent in the course of the human race to encompass the notion of duress. I mean, that's, that's sometimes done, sometimes not. They're part and parcel of the same thing, which is whether you can blame the person for what he did. They're, they're not the same thing, even in the, even in the criminal. In the criminal law, they're not, I agree, right. because that's because we've seen the new need for and specificity. You've... But the question I think Justice Stevens had, and certainly I have, is why do you read some aspects of what it takes to hold a person uh, responsible into the statute, but you don't read other aspects of what it takes to hold a person responsible morally into the statute? We don't read our, our, our position is it, it's not fair to um, it's not fair to incorporate the full common law um, background criminal concepts, including that of duress. Um, the question, what, Justice Breyer, whether assistance in persecution contains an implicit 
duress limitation seems to me very different from the question whether it contains an implied knowledge limitation. And the latter question is not present here with respect to a prison guard who, by his own admission, knew exactly what was going on and deliberately implemented torture by keeping people in the sun, exposed in the sun, to the point of death. Your concession or statement earlier on that there are going to be situations for judicial line drawing in this suggests to me that BIA's discretion isn't applicable here under Chevron Step 2, because what you're saying is this is not a situation where the statute never applies. In a situation where you can logically determine, and your answer on the knowledge question is pertinent, you can logically draw a line between what person's doing and persecution. And yet you say courts are going to have to draw lines. So BIA, uh, uh, the Board, might get discretion with respect to where that line is drawn and when, but they do not get discretion on the question of does it ever apply. And what your position here is that this never applies whenever there's a but-for logical connection between the action and the persecution. Mr. Chief Justice, they certainly get discretion in conducting the analysis of what constitutes assistance. Um, But Fedorenko said that 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 inquiry is independent of any question of duress. Um, It said that the inquiry should happen case by case. That's fine. But it gave — the footnote in Fedorenko gave us two clear data points um, to help frame the analysis. One is the conduct of a woman who does nothing more than cut the hair of people bound for execution. Court says, as a matter of law, that cannot constitute assistance. The other data point is the case of an armed prison guard, who perimeter guard who keeps people in a camp, and the Court said, of course, that constitutes But you would say the woman who cuts the hair does participate in the persecution if there's a guideline that says, look, we're not going to execute anybody unless before their hair is cut, right? I I, I would not say that. I think Fedorenko — You would agree that's a case that's not covered by the statute, even though the person is not going to be executed unless the woman does her job. I think Fedorenko — Fedorenko says that the — the — level and degree and character of assistance of the woman simply cutting the hair does not constitute assistance. At the other continuum of conduct, Fedorenko says that the conduct of an armed prison guard does constitute assistance, even if, as in Fedorenko, the guard served under duress. And, Justice Stevens, if I could come back to the facts of Fedorenko, the district court in that case found that if Fedorenko uh, did not serve at the prison guard, at the prison camp, he would have been executed. That finding was not reversed either by the Fifth Circuit or by this Court, um, which held that duress was not relevant to the inquiry of assistance. Mr. Petitioner. What, what about the position that the Displaced Persons Act was special to the Holocaust, that we were dealing with people who said we were just following orders and we did not want to grant those people asylum. Now, in this post-World War II effort, we are engaged in an enterprise with other countries in the world, and should we look to see 
how they are interpreting this notion of duress, coercion, are they considering it irrelevant? We just look to see if the person, in fact, was providing some material assistance to persecution. Justice Ginsburg, it's true that the Displaced Persons Act um, was limited to um, the Nazi regime and later statutes. The, the Refugee Act generalizes in the sense of eliminating the time and place restrictions on the definition of refugee. On the specific question of the persecutor bar, Congress carries forward the same language with an affirmative indication of intent to preserve the concept. With respect to your point about the Nazis being singularly horrific in human history, think of how that feature um, plays out under petitioner's theory. Under petitioner's theory, um, the uniquely horrific nature of the Nazi regime gives rise to a dramatically expanded class of people who can credibly raise a duress defense. Um, anyone under anyone under Adolf Hitler in the organization chart of the Nazi government could credibly say, if I didn't kill Jews, I would be killed myself. Uh, the executive permissibly rejected that construction of things in, in construing the persecutor bar at issue here. Thank you, Mr. Katzis. Uh, Mr. Pincus, you have four minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Pincus, who has the burden of proof on uh, 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 assuming that there is a, an exception for coercion? Uh, the applicant would the have applicant, the burden of proof. Uh, and, 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 you know, what — how do you decide? I mean, there's not going to be any evidence on the other side, I assume. The applicant's going to say, I was coerced. And, and the only basis for rejecting uh, — is it sufficient basis? I just I, — I don't believe you. Yes, the, the credibility determinations are made all the time. And there is some — I mean, here, the applicant — I mean, they're made all the time, time, but how are they made? How are they made? I looked into the person's eyes and they look shifty. No, they have to look they, — they search around for some little contradiction in the testimony. If the, if, the IJ, if the IJ has a suspicion that this person who's testifying through an interpreter, what language did, did uh, the, the petitioner here speak? Uh, I'm not, not, not English. You, you don't know? I don't know, but not English. There was an interpreter at the, at the hearing. Yeah, and how many interpreters of that language are there in the United States, and what are the quality of the interpreters? And, but, Your Honor, and, and do they have shifty eyes? But, but these are poor these same issues. I mean, do they typically have views on the underlying persecution issue that's at, at issue? Do the interpreters? Yes. I mean, it's not at all unreasonable if you have a clash between two ethnic groups in a particular country that the interpreters are going to have views one way or another. They're going to come from one of the groups or one of the other. They may, Your Honor, but, but that's a problem. We already have a system where we're deciding whether someone was persecuted, and all of these issues arise. We already are getting it, are looking very specifically at all of the facts. The same facts, the same factual development will be read relevant to the coercion issue. As I said, the, the applicant will bear the burden of proof. And here, the, as in other cases, the country reports are, are often relied on and are revealing as to whether what the situation is, what the specific context is, makes sense. 
if I could turn to the criminal law question uh, that Justice Scalia asked, I think the criminal law background is very relevant here as well, because the treaty that, that this statute was enacted uh, to implement our obligations with respect to, sorry, uh, respect referred specifically to crimes. The, the exclusion that was author, that's authorized by the treaty says, and I'm quoting from uh, an excerpt on page 11 of our reply brief, has committed a crime against peace, a war crime or a crime against humanity. That, therefore, it makes very relevant this body of law that's been developed in the criminal Why context. is that an apt analogy? If we looked at all of the duress cases that have been decided under the criminal law of this country since the beginning, are we going to find cases where someone said, uh, someone claimed that uh, I, I was told I had to kill 25 people, 100 people. I had to put people out in the sun until they, until they died. Well, because if I didn't do that, uh, I was going to be shot. It, aren't, aren't the situations entirely different? I think you're combining two questions, Your Honor. One, one is, should this language be interpreted to have uh, a coer to, to require uncoerced conduct in order to, to label someone a persecutor? We think this is very relevant in deciding that question because the underlying treaty that was implemented specifically referred to crimes, and crimes generally have uh, that uh, that uh, crimes don't a criminal liability doesn't apply to someone who acts if they're coerced. Whether the precise standards that have been developed in the federal criminal context are control in all situations here. I think that's, that's something uh, that may not be clear. As I suggested, the Attorney General may have some discretion to flesh out, and the Board may, what is coercion in this context. And there is a debate, as I said before, about whether uh, intentional murder, especially the intentional murder of a group of people, uh, is, is an act for which coercion is ever, a coercion defense is ever available. But those are issues, uh, that, that don't take away from the fact that here, uh, the government's position is there is, coercion is totally irrelevant. If I could just, uh, one other issue, uh, the voluntariness provisions in the statute that my colleague raised in response to, uh, Justice Souter's question, uh, those provisions were enacted, uh, subsequently. The, the 1980 Refugee Act, adopted the language that's at issue here. May I finish my answer? Uh, and that's not actually an answer, but go Oh, ahead. I'm sorry. May I finish my <laughs> You can finish thought, sentence. My thought. Uh, the language at issue here, uh, those came later in the reenactment of that language in another context. Thank you Thank you, much. counsel. Case is submitted.